0: Greetings. My name is Bhakti Artuzmukhamedov, and um, as professor of international law, I have had some uh, teaching experience at home and elsewhere, including the Hague Academy of International Law. Today, I suggest that we have a chat about uh, law of disarmament. The UN uh, Audiovisual Library of International Law already offers several lectures on issues related to uh, regulation or prohibition of weapons of uh, mass destruction specifically nuclear and uh, chemical weapons. For my part, I'd rather discuss more general matters uh, such as definitions, general approaches, sources, and some historical landmarks. The term disarmament embraces a variety of uh, measures designed to limit, both in terms of quantity and quality, reduce, eliminate, and cease production of um, means of warfare. The summament may include limitation and uh, reduction of military personnel, as well as reduction of military spending. The term arms control is widely used alongside or as a substitute for the summament. Similar to the United uh, Nations Charter term regulation of armaments, it applies to measures that limit or reduce armaments and armed forces and related activities though not amounting to their complete uh, and irreversible elimination. Legal norms that form the foundation of such measures closely interact with norms that regulate the use of force in international relations since they reinforce restrictions on such use. For example, demilitarized and neutralized territories or confidence-building measures that include constraints on or monitoring of military activities may reduce the possibility of outbreak of hostilities by uh, intention or by mistake. Likewise, norms that regulate the limitation of armaments interact with norms that restrict the use of means and methods of warfare by parties to armed conflicts. Um, Since in conjunction they prohibit some of those means, in particular the ones that cause excessive suffering or have indiscriminate effect. Disarmament may be executed, firstly, by way of coordinated measures based on equitable cooperation. Such measures are embodied in the majority of treaties that are products of negotiations, a parties to which fully enjoyed rights uh, incidental to sovereignty. Secondly, treaty-based disarmament may also target a particular party by imposing lawful, coercive restrictions on its armaments and armed forces. Such was the Treaty of Versailles of 1919. It imposed broad-ranging restrictions on the German armed forces, affecting personnel, materiel, command structure, and military education. The disarmament clauses of the Treaty of Versailles were as comprehensive as they were ultimately futile. They effectively ceased to be operative in 1935, when Germany reinstated universal conscription and concluded a naval armaments uh, agreement with uh, Great Britain, which allowed Germany to go well above and beyond restrictions imposed on its own navy. Another example of treaty-based, or rather treaty-imposed, unilateral disarmament may be found in the military, naval, and air provisions of peace treaties concluded in 1947 uh, by the Soviet Union, United Kingdom, United States, and several other states, with the uh, five European states which had allied with the Nazi Germany, respectively Bulgaria, Finland, Hungary, Italy, and Romania. Similar provisions uh, may be found uh, in the state treaty for the reestablishment of an independent and democratic Austria uh, that was concluded in 1955 by France, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, and the United States with Austria. However, they were not imposed as sanctions on a vanquished aggressor, but were negotiated with a state that pledged to become neutral, and they become one of the guarantees of that neutrality. Disarmament may be imposed on a state unilaterally as a sanction and as a measure to remedy a violation of international peace and security. An example of such measure would be the 1945 declaration regarding the defeat of Germany and the assumption of supreme authority with respect of Germany uh, by the governments of four allied states. Germany effectively lost its sovereignty And its disarmament arose from complete and unconditional surrender. A similar measure, that is, a sanction and a remedy, was imposed on Iraq as partial disarmament under the terms of the UN Security Council Resolution 687 of um, 1991. The resolution provided for an unconditional destruction or rendering harmless under international supervision of all chemical and biological weapons and related subsystems and components, as well as all Iraq's ballistic missiles with range exceeding 150 kilometers and related research and manufacturing facilities. The resolution also obliged Iraq to refrain from any activity in violation of the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. However, unlike Germany in 1945, Iraq, in 1991, remained a sovereign state. Likewise, sovereignty of Syria was not diminished when, in 2013, she unconditionally eliminated her chemical weapons program and acceded to the Convention on the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in compliance with prescriptions and procedures which were devised without her participation by the UN Security Council. This armament may be achieved by, on a limited scale through unilateral measures undertaken by a single state or by several states uh, concurrently, of, uh, absent of a, of a formal agreement. One important example would be unilateral restrictions on tactical nuclear weapons which were undertaken by the presidents of the United States and firstly Soviet Union and later Russian Federation in the early 1990s. A special instance of unilateral measures of disarmament uh, is application of a treaty which has not entered into force and is not provisionally applicable within the meaning of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, but it is implemented by the parties of their own will. In 1979, the United States and Soviet Union signed the Treaty on the Limitation of Strategic Offensive Arms, also known as SALT II. It was an extremely detailed and elaborate document that matured through almost five years of intensive negotiations. For a variety of international and uh, domestic reasons, it had no prospect of being ratified by one of the parties. That notwithstanding, both the U.S. and the USSR made statements that they would abide by the treaty provisions on the basis of reciprocity. That informal arrangement, despite occasional allegations of non-compliance, had been adhered to by both parties until um, the initiation of a new comprehensive negotiation that resulted in further reductions and restrictions on nuclear weapons. Norms of international law are formed and applied in a coordinated manner. Moreover, they bear a coordinating function Hence, in the international legal sense, it would be be the measures of the first category, that is, coordinated measures based on equitable cooperation that best fit the terms disarmament and or arms control. Measures of the second and third categories rather belong to state responsibility and coercive enforcement. As to unilateral measures, they are political by nature, do not acquire legal form, do not imply verification of compliance, while non-compliance does not entail responsibility. They may create climate conducive to negotiation of coordinated treaty norms, or may form the foundation of such norms. In some instances, they can even be negotiated into a formal agreement. Consider, for example, the treaty between Russia and the United States on strategic offensive reductions of um, 2002, also known as SORT. The SORT treaty merely formalized unilateral commitments and did not even hint at any verification of compliance. However, it paved the way for negotiations culminating in the treaty between the U.S. and uh, Russia uh, on measures for the further reduction and elimination of strategic offensive arms Also known as the New START Treaty. While the second half of uh, the 20th and early years of the 21st centuries witnessed a considerable growth in numbers of disarmament and arms control treaties, still earlier times offer examples of coordinated measures embodied into a legal form that uh, some of which are still uh, valid as of this day. One notable arrangement that has remained in force uh, since early 19th century is an agreement of 1817 related to the limitation and reduction of the naval forces on the American Great Lakes. It was widely known as uh, the Rush-Bagot Agreement named after acting U.S. Secretary of State Richard Rush and the British envoy to the United States, Sir Charles Bagot. The Treaty of Ghent of 1814, which ended uh, the British-American War, did not contain any disarmament provisions. During the war, several battles were fought on or around the Great Lakes. But after the war, both countries, for political, military, economic reasons, were inclined to reduce naval forces on the lakes. To meet those concerns, the rush bay agreement limited the total number of men-of-war that each party was allowed to deploy to four 100-ton vessels, each armed with a single 18-pound cannon. By today's measurement, that would be a cannon with a caliber of about 138 millimeters uh, firing cannonballs um, weighing 8.2 kilograms. As you may observe, the agreement imposed both quantitative and qualitative restrictions within a specific territory. Moreover, contracting parties agreed to dismantle existing warships above agreed limits and not to build them or arm vessels navigating in the lakes in the future. The uh, Rush-Bay-Gott agreement does not belong to history only. In 2003, it was referred to during diplomatic uh, consultations between the United States and Canada regarding the needs of counter-terrorist activities on the lakes in the aftermath of attacks of 11 September 2001. The U.S. Coast Guard intended to arm its vessels engaged in law enforcement in U.S. waters with machine guns. While neither the tonnage, of vessels nor caliber of weapons exceeded the limits of Raj agreement, both parties chose to refer to the record of prior notifications and consultations under the agreement and to stick to interpretations of that agreement that, they were, that were reached earlier. Still another example is one of the four pacts of May, Pactos de Mayo, forgive my Spanish, concluded in 1902 by Chile and Argentina to resolve resolve their territorial disputes and ease tensions that had been growing towards the end of the 19th century. Under the Treaty on Limitation on Naval Armaments, both states agreed not to take possession of naval assets that were on order or to place orders for construction of new warships. The two Hague Peace Conferences of 1899 and 1907 left a substantial and appreciable normative heritage. While most of dedicated disarmament objectives of the the conferences had not been achieved, they nonetheless produced several conventions and legally binding declarations. Most of them are aimed at protection of victims Uh, of armed conflict and restrict means and weapons of warfare, and that places them within the realm of international humanitarian law. However, some of those treaties, in their scope, approach measures characteristic of arms control and disarmament. Probably the most well-known is the 1925 Protocol for the Prohibition of the Use um, in War of Asphyxiating Poisonous or Other Gases and of bacteriological methods of warfare, also known as the Geneva Protocol of 1925. It is the treaty additional to the Hague Conventions of 1907, uh, its adoption having been precipitated by the use of chemical weapons during the First World War. The period between the two World Wars also witnessed the negotiation and conclusion of the Washington Treaty uh, on the limitation of the naval armament of 1922, and the London Treaty for the limitation and reduction of naval armament of 1930. They may count as brainchildren of the Second Hague Conference, which focused on the regulation of naval warfare. Impressive in their intent and design, those treaties had been short-lived and never came near the attainment of their ambitious goals. Neither did the League of Nations, which set as one of its objectives the reduction of national armaments uh, to the lowest point consistent with national safety and the enforcement by common action of international obligations. It did, however, convene in 1932 the Conference for the Reduction and Limitation of Armaments, which is commonly known as the World Disarmament Conference. It received a major boost from the Treaty providing for the renunciation of war as an instrument of national policy, also known as the kellogg briand uh, Pact of uh, 1928. After several years of intermittent work, the conference approached agreement on several issues. However, several events, including Japan's and Germany's withdrawal from the League of Nations, and Germany's breakout uh, from the Treaty of Versailles regime in 1933, followed by Germany leaving the conference, and Japan's announcement in 1934 of termination of the Washington Naval Treaty resulted in uh, suspension and ultimate discontinuation of the conference in uh, 1937. The post-World War II period witnessed considerable declaratory and institutional activity related to general and complete disarmament new deliberative and negotiating platforms had been set up, and ambitious proposals had been forwarded. In 1959, almost simultaneously, the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union submitted to the UN General Assembly separate proposals containing plans for, respectively, comprehensive disarmament and complete disarmament. Soon afterwards, the Soviet proposal was developed into a draft treaty on general and complete disarmament under strict international control, that goal to be achieved within four years. That draft, along with the U.S. outline of basic provisions of a treaty on general and complete disarmament in a peaceful world, served as a basis for discussions at a special negotiating forum, the Committee on Disarmament. A profound philosophical divide between the two proposals, apart from unrealistic timelines, was that the Soviet draft viewed disarmament as means of achieving the peaceful world, while according to the U.S. outline, disarmament could be feasible only in the world enjoying universal peace. Attempts to reconcile the two competing drafts resulted in a joint statement of Agreed Principles for Disarmament Negotiations, also known as McCloy-Zorin Declaration, named after John McCloy, President Kennedy's Special Disarmament Advisor and Negotiator, and Valerian Zorin, who was the Soviet Ambassador to the United Nations. Amazingly, the two diplomats managed to reach an agreement in September 1961 at the height of the Berlin Crisis which brought Europe and maybe the world to the brink of a major war. The eight principles uh, covered balanced, staged, and verifiable elimination of all armed forces and armaments. Exception would be made only for, and I quote, non-nuclear armaments, forces, facilities, and establishments as are agreed to be necessary to maintain internal order, and protect the personal security of citizens, and that states shall support and provide agreed manpower for a United Nations peace force. End of quote. They were endorsed by the General Assembly as a basis for negotiations at the Committee of Disarmament, and implicitly as means of resuscitating the committee itself. Although again, both uh, targets ultimately uh, turned uh, unreachable. For the United Nations, uh, the McCloy-Zorin Declaration remains one of the highlights in the multilateral disarmament efforts. Realistically though, the general and complete disarmament uh, has remained an ultimate goal rather than uh, a practicable objective. Uh, That goal to be achieved through stepping stones of partial measures. Let's now devote some time uh, to a discussion of principal and subsidiary sources of the law of disarmament. The UN Charter offers a general international legal foundation for disarmament in its Article 11, Paragraph 1, which refers principles governing disarmament and the regulation of armaments to the body of general principles of cooperation in the maintenance of international peace and security. The contemporary international law is not aware of a generally recognized and universal obligation to this arm. In the judgment in the case military and paramilitary activities in and against Nicaragua, Nicaragua versus the United States, the International Court of Justice stated that, and I quote, in international law there are no rules other than such rules that may be accepted by the state concerned by treaty or otherwise, whereby the level of armaments of a sovereign state can be limited, and this principle is valid for all states without exception." End of quote. The essence of the general obligation regarding this armament is reflected in Article 6 of the Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, and is confined to a commitment, and I quote, "...to pursue negotiations in good faith on effective measures relating to cessation of the nuclear arms race at an early date, and to nuclear disarmament, and on treaty on general and complete disarmament under strict and effective international control. End of quote. Hence, the obligation to engage in negotiations pursuing three objectives. Cessation of the nuclear arms race, nuclear disarmament, general and complete disarmament. An authoritative interpretation of Article 6 may be found in the advisory opinion given by the ICJ on legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons. The Court was unanimous in stating that, quote, there exists an obligation to pursue in good faith and bring to a conclusion negotiations leading to nuclear disarmament in all its aspects under strict and effective international control. End of quote. Uh, Firstly, it may appear that by omitting reference to cessation of the nuclear arms race, the court implied that that objective had been achieved. However, there is a caveat. The opinion was rendered prior to nuclear tests conducted by India and Pakistan in 1998 and North Korea, probably in 2006 and quite definitely in 2009, although the rate with which those states accumulated nuclear stockpiles, came nowhere close to the speed and uh, scope of primary accumulation of nuclear weapons uh, by the states that reached nuclear capability before conclusion of the treaty. Secondly, the court went beyond Article Six instruction to pursue negotiations by opining um, that it, and I quote, goes beyond that of a mere obligation of conduct the obligation involved here is an obligation to achieve a precise result nuclear disarmament in all its aspects end of quote thirdly the court stated that it appreciated quote the full importance of the recognition by article 6 of an obligation to negotiate in good faith a nuclear disarmament end of quote that language may lead and in fact did lead some observers to a conclusion that it amounted to recognition of a presumably pre-existing obligation to negotiate nuclear disarmament. Reference to uh, the central obligation to negotiate and to the three objectives, or specifically to Article Six, may be found in several treaties on limitation of nuclear uh, armaments concluded between the United States and the Soviet Union, and later Russia, usually in their preambles. Several treaties establishing regional nuclear weapon-free zones, with the exception of Latin American and uh, Caribbean um, zone, which predated the Non-Proliferation Treaty, also make references to the treaty, generally, or to its Article VI, or to its other provisions. The principal sources of um, norms regulating disarmament are international treaties. They may be universal, such as the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, or they may be original, like the five treaties establishing nuclear weapon-free zones in Latin America and the Caribbean, South Pacific, Southeast Asia, Africa, Central Asia. However, while regional, those treaties to be effective require a form of adjunct participation of extra-regional states including those possessing nuclear weapons and those that may exercise jurisdiction over territories within the zone. Treaties may be universal in a sense that they are open for accession by any state, even though, even though they apply to a particular region as does the Antarctic Treaty. They may be bilateral, although except for the rush bay God Agreement, uh, Pacts of May, and um, a few confidence-building arrangements, most substantive bilateral arms control and disarmament agreements were negotiated and concluded within the context of strategic stability, dialogue between the United States and the Soviet Union, and later Russia. As the role of international intergovernmental organizations in creation of norms is growing, so does the significance of their resolutions as an auxiliary source of law in the realm of disarmament certain resolutions adopted by the UN General Assembly related to disarmament may contain prospective norms in the formative phase. The ICJ noted in uh, 1996 in the advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons that the General Assembly resolutions, quote, even if they are not binding may sometimes have normative value. They can, in certain circumstances, provide evidence important for, re- for establishing the existence of a rule or the emergence of opinio juris. Or, a series of resolutions may show the gradual evolution of the opinio juris required for the establishment of a new rule. End of quote. Occasionally, um, the resolutions of the General Assembly serve as ancillary means of implementation of treaty norms. An uh, an outstanding example is the establishment by the General General Assembly of uh, procedures to promote compliance with a treaty that did not contain verification provisions. I already referred to the Geneva Protocol of 1925. Unlike several disarmament treaties concluded uh, in the 1970s and onwards, the Protocol did not provide for inspections or other means of verification the weapons the protocol regulated have been deployed in the war between Iraq and Iran in the 1980s, both on the battlefield and against civilians. By Resolution 42-37C, adopted without vote, the General Assembly established a system of reporting of alleged violations of the protocol and of their investigation by experts appointed by the UN General- Secretary General. While prompted by a specific situation of the use of prohibited weapons, that system was not confined exclusively to that particular situation. It was again put to use in 2013 with respect to reported use of chemical weapons in Syria. Judgments and advisory opinions of uh, the ICJ may also be essential in assessing uh, and clarifying the meaning of legal principles and norms that regulate disarmament. We have already discussed the advisory opinion on legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons and its interpretation of the core obligation under Article 6 of the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. And yet, the court found, found reasons not to delve into those matters in the nuclear test case in 1974, and more recently, uh, in 2016, in the nuclear arms race case. The Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties leads us to supplementary means of elucidating the contents of rights and obligation, obligations under the settlement treaties. Uh, such means could include minutes or other joint records had they, had they been made uh, during the negotiations. Uh, It should be borne in mind, though, that occasionally, especially within the context of bilateral negotiations, parties may keep individual records. And their perception of what transpired during negotiations and how that uh, would affect the treaty implementation may differ. Documents such as interpretations and understandings related to the ratification of international treaties by respective national branches of power may, too, serve as auxiliary means of interpretation. Many of them are rather inward-looking and may reflect anything from appraisal of a capacity of a state to implement a treaty to intricacies of relations between branches of power. Others are directed at treaty partners and may, um, in the case of bilateral treaties, be rather assertive and adversarial. Consider, for example, conditions, understandings, and declarations contained in the U.S. Senate Resolution giving advice and consent to the ratification of the New START Treaty and the Russian federal law on the ratification of that treaty. Let me conclude our chat by saying that as we are meeting today, disarmament as law, as an institution, as a mechanism, as an ultimate goal, is in deep trouble. I am grateful for your showing interest in that critical subject, which, as I am convinced, should remain a priority for legal academics and uh, practitioners worldwide. For further reading, um, I might suggest that you have a look at my published course that I uh, read at the the Hague Academy of International Law in 2014. Thank you and good luck.